Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in, because Big Mike has got the life starting now. Hi folks, this is Mike Zlatnik, Big Mike, and uh, this is Big Mike Fun Podcast, and I'm joined today by Jeremy Roll uh, with Roll Investment Group. Hi, Jeremy. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me back on again. I appreciate it. Thank you kindly for coming for second episode. And we got some really hot topics to discuss. So let's just ju- jump straight into the super hot topic. Proposed, Congress proposed uh, changes and how they impact investing. And let's start with the most painful one, if it, if it passes, uh, prohibiting self-directed IRAs of investing into effectively all 506 deals, uh, deals requiring accreditation or sophistication. So it would knock out 506C and 506B, right? It would knock them out completely. That's my understanding. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, I don't have a, a, a IRA, self-directed IRA account, so it's not going to impact me directly. On the other hand, I'm trying to think about, because there's, I would estimate based on, you know, I've been investing 19 years. I've talked to a lot of investors over time. And my estimate is that 10 to 20% of funds invested in private placements are from self-directed retirement accounts, most of which is probably self-directed IRAs or Roth, self-directed Roth IRAs specifically. There are some 401ks and stuff and some solo uh, 401ks, but I think a lot of it's coming from IRAs. So if we assume 10 to 15% of the, all the capital ever invested in private placements has been from these type of accounts, it's a big impact for investors and for sponsors. And what... I'm trying to get my arms around is it that to me, one of the most unbelievable things about it is the forced, uh, the, basically the forced withdrawal of, you know, they're saying, I mean, at, we're, in a, we're recording this right now in September of 2021, where it hasn't been passed yet. So we don't know if it's going to change or if it's going to drop off, it's going to be the same. I put a lot of thought into this because first of all, if you think about who this helps, okay, this helps the big banks. And in fact, Wall Street. This yeah. is for the Wall Street. The big Wall yeah. Street lobby and, wins. And I frankly wouldn't be surprised if some brilliant banker woke up one day, called their you know politician they lobby, and said, "I have a great idea. I'm going to generate a ton of tax revenue for you because of all your spending, and we're going to do better on our end. And you're basically going to stop people from investing through their IRAs into private placements, so that it all has to go into stocks and bonds. And then we both win. Like I could see them having this conversation. And so you're going to have the big bank lobby." trying to push this through. The question is, who's going to try and stop it? And there's only three parties I can think of that are going to try and stop it. It's going to be the self-directed custodian companies who I've already seen emails from, they've forwarded to me. I've, I, the sponsors who want to be able to raise as much capital as possible for the private placements. And then the investors who want to be able to invest in what they want in their self-directed IRAs, right? But none of these three buckets have much of a lobbying presence, if any, right? So I don't think it's, it, there's just no match from a lobbying perspective on what's going to happen. So my, my default thought is that it's a high probability to pass in its either current form or close to its current form, right? And so, but what blows me away is the forced withdrawal within two years, as of January 1st, 2022, where if you already have this type of opportunity, you've already invested in the past, you'll be forced to withdraw it from your IRA within two years. That is a massive problem for the types of opportunities that you and I look at because they're all illiquid. We don't know what the valuation is. And frankly, I've been brainstorming this with people. Is it better to withdraw that capital from your IRA to yourself and actually transfer it to yourself, take the, the hit of the taxes 
right? But the problem with that equation is that you have to get an appraisal probably to substantiate the value that you're actually withdrawing it at, right? And, and that's prohibitive for most people. I mean, that could be a five or $10,000 cost on a large building or whatever it is, right? For the, in, in the right, wrong circumstance. And so it's just cost prohibitive versus the other option is for you to sell your shares to somebody else, right? And if you do that, you have a set price, you have no more appraisal problem. It's a determined price to an arm, you know, arm's length third party. But then you're probably going to have to sell at a discount because there is no appraisal. Nobody knows what anything is worth. And those transactions typically happen at discount because of the illiquidity and the lack of, of value so, or valuation. So you're kind of like stuck between a rock and a hard place. And what I'm trying to figure out myself too is like, okay, does this mean that I'm going to be approached by investors in the next two years selling their shares? And what does that mean exactly, right? And what, and if you really put a lot of thought into it, you know, you're better off buying the ones where there's like a 10-year loan on a property that was purchased at a cap rate that was much higher in 2013, and it's about to exit in two years. And now they have to sell at a discount to what they probably originally bought on it because they have no idea what it's worth today. And it's a huge spread. You know, there's going to be all these weird scenarios. I feel very bad for the people who invested in these opportunities uh, like this. Uh, I feel bad that they won't have as much flexibility going forward. And I also think that the government's trying to print and use so much money and spend so much money that it's almost inevitability it's going to pass because it just goes to show you how desperate the government is to grab as much tax as they can now. That's the bottom line, right? That's what this results for and for the government. So a lot of great nuggets. And I will say this, I will back to differ on one really important point okay. and then we'll cover uh, some of the other ones and on the point number one so uh in my view the impact of this is absolutely absolutely humongous that impact like everything you mentioned is huge the likelihood is not yeah. high in my view i i do feel that there's going to be substantial lobby from ira custodians from real estate investors from private uh, any kind of private funds and then individual investors um, that this particular item will get yanked out. There are other items. This is intended, this is all driven by the story that Peter uh, Feel of uh, PayPal, the founder, has a $5 billion Roth. Yes. Right. So they will probably put limitations on the Roth and force withdrawals. Today, proposed 10 million over two years, you have to withdraw anything about, right? Right. They'll probably put some other limitations, but this one in the IRA section is particularly painful to a lot of people. The impact is 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 absolutely horrible. And you're right; uh, it can cause massive grief to already invested money. How do you exit? How do you value? Um, especially for small investors with fifty thousand dollars invested in the deal, uh, you got to go spend a bunch of money to do a study what it's worth. Um, yeah, so there's all kinds of complexity. Everything you mentioned is is a, is a is an impact, and that impact would be bad. But the likelihood, in my view, again, key point is that it, it will actually be yanked out, and we yet to see. The time will show. Hopefully, I'm right, then you're wrong, but. The time will show whether this particular uh, element of the proposed package will pass. Well, Mike, I will say this, that normally when I see proposals that seem a little crazy uh, in terms of their impact, I just assume, I, I actually don't normally pay any attention to this stuff until it's passed, then I read it because there's so many changes that happen anyway. That's the approach that I take. It's like wasting time when it's before it's passed to an extent. But the only reason why I think it's high probability, and it's a really rare thing for me to say, 
is only because I just don't see the lobby that's going to happen against it being big enough compared to the, the force of the banks. But we're going to see. We're going to see. I actually really hope that it doesn't pass because it's going to impact a lot of people I know, uh, both sponsors and investors. And it's just anyway. So we'll see. I hope you're right. Yeah, well, the time will show, but uh, it is a fundamental element. Uh, I, I do feel that um, we've reached the age of more printing press and less uh, and less taxation from as a as a total of revenue. So the, the greater we, the deeper we go in, only the printing press can can get us uh, to, to will keep us rolling. So if anything, the government. Uh, the key essence of the bill is 3.5 trillion. And I don't know how much this will actually create an additional revenue. It might create something, but it, it's not going to move the needle. It is a dog and pony show. It's a negotiation tactic to jam it in so that other stuff will pass. This is my opinion. This will be sacrificed, uh, but the 10 million, I think they're going to keep it, blaming Peter Thiel and saying, let's get rid of uh, Roth IRAs for super rich guys because they do nothing but tax shield through those accounts. So again, well, the time will show. Uh, but but let's continue um, th this this conversation. Uh, if this does pass, uh, my hope is that they're going to actually allow people to stay in the current deals. That's 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 that, that's the version 2.0. The light light lighten up because. How do you get out of a five-year syndication, multifamily syndication within two years if you invested your money recently? It becomes incredibly hard. And um, also the sponsors have no responsibility to redeem you. So you got to go find alternative investors and sponsors don't even have to approve the transfer. You, these are illiquid securities. You cannot actually sell them or trade them. The only thing you can do is call your IRA custodian and basically um, say, I'm doing distribution to myself in form of the asset, right? And do that, that study. But other than that, if you wanna sell that, you cannot sell it to a third party. You have to find a replacement investor and have the sponsor approve them and accredit them and the whole spiel. And, and then at that point, uh, all alternative IRA investors go away. The demand for the product will drop. So the, 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 the pricing will be substantially discounted unless, um, unless there are enough cash investors trying to come in. That's 100% right. That's why I'm keeping a close eye on it as well, because um, look, in the end of the day, if it actually does happen, and I really hope it doesn't happen, honestly, but if it does, I might be looking to purchase some discounted shares, right? I mean, I think a lot of investors will be. Um, and I don't know what that's going to look like. I have no idea. Um, and, and there's so many aspects to this. You know, it's a funny thing on a similar topic that nobody ever talks about and most people don't even know about. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of tax code section 1202 of the IRS tax code? Not off the top of my head. Maybe I know what it means, but. Probably not, but it still blows me away. So, because um, I have some startup investments that qualify for this. So, uh, you know that if you invest in a startup with less than $50 million in assets or any company, any business with less than $50 million in assets um, and as a passive investor and um and $50 million has to include the round that's closing at the time and all the assets that are coming in from it, all the cash. And you hold for over five years, you actually do not pay capital gains tax when you sell your shares on the first $10 million in gains. That is fascinating. I didn't know that. And I, I was in the high tech industry and uh, most of the companies, the smallest startups fall into that category. Uh, I didn't realize that there was a $10 million um, no tax. Uh, yeah. 
And, and uh, what the whole point of it is to incentivize people to invest in, in companies that are growing and, and have the long-term investment. So I get the point. I think the cap should be much lower. I'm surprised it actually hasn't been floated out there because that would be another great talking point. Um, and what's funny too, is I think a lot of states have a similar setup in their tax. They are tax states. So California, where I live, for example, used to actually have that until 2012 or 13, and they got rid of it. And so you have to pay regular long-term capital gains to California from dollar one, but they used to also have their own exemption similarly. So I don't know how they, who got this passed or when or how, but that's another similar one coming to mind that I'm surprised they haven't attacked at this point. I don't know how much money it would really raise for them from a tax revenue perspective, but it would certainly be a great talking point to the public. Yeah, very interesting. And that's why Silicon Valley is slowly moving to Austin, Texas. So <laughs> no state yeah. tax and, and pretty good uh, technology platform. But yeah, watch out, California. Be careful with uh, heavy taxation as people begin to shift out. Um, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that, that topic. So you're in California um, and this continuous uh, shift of folks moving uh, out of California into neighboring states and, and states like Texas, especially for the technology platform. But, but what do you, where do you think it's going? Is, is California at a risk of drastic um, um, demographic shifts uh, with everything that's going on? Again, politics aside, just more of a uh, demographic and, 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 and the, the people are sensitive to the, to the tax rates. Yeah, so... You're talking to someone who has both been stuck in California because I would have left there a long time ago because my wife's family is here for many, many years. I would have left probably 15 years ago. Um, and you're also talking to someone who lives in L.A. And the, the thing about living in L.A. is that it's a very unique city because of all the entertainment industry and everything, which is shifting to Austin and other places as well. Right. Um, and so I've had a lot of conversations with people I know here um, over the past year or two during the pandemic. Things have gotten worse in this specific city with regards to homelessness, crime and other things. And the cost of living has just continued to increase. The cost of housing is off the charts. The traffic's off the charts. The, edu the quality of education's very, very low rated, on and on and on, right? So the uh, risk, not the risk of war, but I, I suppose, what's the, what's the best way for me to phrase it? The cost benefit of living here now is becoming a more and more difficult proposition. And that has been the discussion I've had with most people in the past one to two years during the pandemic here. And that's where I fear um, California in general, San Francisco and LA specifically are gonna continue to have an exodus. Um, and you know, with regard to San Diego, Orange County, that cost benefits different. It's a different cost and you get different benefits. Uh, you know, Orange County is, and San Diego are safer than where I am. There's less homelessness, there's more benefits, there's newer parks, there's newer homes, there are better planned communities, there's less traffic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, um, in San Francisco and LA, California specifically, I think they're going to continue to have a lot of challenges. It's just becoming a less and less obvious equation. With other parts of the state, you know, when you factor in the weather and some other benefits, I, I, I can't really speak to it because I can't relate to it because I'm not there. But I think that the overall concept is, I, from where I stand in LA, I do not understand how more people haven't left really. And it's a great city in many ways. I mean, there's a lot, to, there's a ton to offer, but I keep telling people, especially now with work from home, unless you have to be here, right? There's the cost benefit. If you were, you and I were put this on a whiteboard, you would be like, okay, you'd conclude, like you'd look at one side is so heavily weighted compared to the other. You'd be like, what's going on? Right. And so 
Um, I think it's, I think they, uh, they're going to have a very hard time in the next 10, 20 years, unless they make some changes to make it a more favorable and rebalance that cost benefit uh, equation. It just gotten worse. I've, I've lived here since 2000. It's gotten worse over time. And I'm sure people will tell you from prior that's gotten worse over time from them. And there is a, you know, with this work from home, that could be the tipping point where, you know, would you really have to be here at all? Um, so, and again, don't get me wrong. There's weather, uh, there's a ton in terms of restaurants, nightlife, culture. There's a lot the city has to offer. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of economic prospects, but uh, there's, it's a very challenging equation here. Great comment there, Jeremy. I really appreciate, uh, I'm in New York. There's some level of similarity here, uh, having again, high taxes, um, both also the, having the ocean here, you have the other, the other ocean and having generally escalating cost of living and uh, worsening kind of environment for, uh, for education and for just lifestyle. So the risk reward or, or the benefit, cost benefit, it, it is shifting in the negative um, uh, direction for, for, for multiple big cities. And you're absolutely right. So have similar story. I would have left the Florida or California a long time ago because of the family. And it is what it is. You, the family is, is, is number one. And, um, but we are, we are, we're going to continue to see this kind of a shift, uh, from, uh, big cities living into, that's why Florida here in taxes are on fire because people are departing, maybe, uh, not running fast enough. But what's really fascinating, and it's anecdotal evidence, um, my friend moved um, from New York to Florida, and originally, instead of buying, he, uh, he said, I'm going to rent. Well, it's a mistake. A year ago, he rented, and the price moved so much. What's really fascinating now, he's, he's facing a pickle because he, the, the rent, what he rented a year ago uh, during COVID, the rent is up 40%. It's almost crazy what's happened. The rents are up, and then the prices are up. A friend of mine, literally just yesterday, I traded emails with her. She bought a condo in Miami in June of 2020. It's already up 40%, 40, 40. Same thing with the rent, right? The exact same number. And it's just astronomical. And when you think about the leverage of buying a place and what the loan to value you can get buying a single family home, figure 80, 20, it's, uh, that's just off the charts, you know? Yeah, and that's crazy. And, and uh, if you compare Florida to New York here, the values were stagnant. He really, really uh, the office has dropped. That's uh, so one thing that has dropped. And I, I think it is absolutely the long-term trend. As you mentioned, work from home has settled in. Well, so a lot of vacancy, massive yeah, vacancy in office space. That's what I'm still trying to get my arms around, though. I have to tell you, I don't take for granted that the pendulum won't swing back a little. And so when I look at the future trend, I think it's going to be dictated by corporations, but in two ways, not just one way. I think it's going to be partially of who allows work from home and who doesn't, but also will the corporation move, like where are they going to be located, right? Because you can't take for granted now that everyone's staying in Silicon Valley, right? Just in general, even if there is going to be an office, it may not be in California any longer, right? It may be in Texas, it may be in Florida, maybe somewhere else. So I think those two things are going to have a huge impact on where people live though, because the reality is that, um, at least I think that a lot of the jobs that took place from home are going to go back into work at some point, either in a hybrid or full-time working hybrid, meaning some, uh, some days uh, you work from home, some days you don't. I was reading a, a really interesting analysis of all this yesterday, and it's, a, it's very complicated from a corporate perspective. So if you want to do a hybrid, for example, in your corporation, you want some people to be able to work two or three days a week, and you want to reduce your office footprint, uh, managing that schedule and getting everybody on the same page and having enough office space for everybody, but not having too much office space that you're wasting space 
and having it on a regular recurring schedule and stuff and having the right people in the office at the right time to collaborate with each other. It's, it's, a, it's not like an unsolvable math problem, but it's a, it's a, it's a multivariate math problem nonetheless, right? And so um, I, I just get this feeling that once the, once the pandemic's behind us and society is a little bit back to normal and functioning more like normal, I think you're going to have, uh, I think you're going to have a higher percentage of companies either not allowed to work from home at all or have a high percentage of people in a high percentage of the time, more so than I think people assume. I could be completely wrong because that is clearly like counter trend at the moment. I'm being obviously, you know, counter the current thinking, uh, but we'll have to see. Yeah, that's, uh, again, brilliant commentary. And I happen to agree with you that we yet to see what's going to happen with the office recovery. Um, absolutely correct. The, there's a substantial complexity coordinating uh, folks who work from home with folks in the office and trying to create productive meetings. And my observation, having gone back into the conferences, the all virtual works well, well, all in person works well. When you start mixing them up virtual and, and physical presence, people are there, not there. This this more coordination and more complexity. Sometimes it's just easier to get the more space and get people to come in. Um, but it, it's also the people. It's the quality of life working from home. And too many people will get used to this and there will be pressure to find a way to um, maybe make it three days a week and then the other days are... But, but that's where I think we have to come down to, in the end of the day, where is the power lying, right? Because if the power is in the hands of the corporations like it has been to date, they're going to be able to dictate the terms because if you don't like it as the employee, they're going to start hire somebody else. Shortage of labor, a lot of, a lot right. of influence for people getting hired. They, 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 a lot of them requesting work from home, especially yes, I, in high tech. I don't disagree. Um, and that, I think it will vary by industry, but I think the longer out we go, I just have this feeling that the further out we go, and the more the employment market normalizes, because it's not normalized yet, the more likely the power is going to end up back in the hands of the corporations because the market's going to normalize to what it was. So we're, we're going to have, this is obviously very speculative. We're, we'll have to see. It's very interesting to watch. And it will absolutely have an impact on real estate and real estate investing, even asset classes, and even multiple asset classes in a city that are affected just by which companies are there and which aren't, right? So it's very interesting. Yep. There's another major need, and I, I had uh, another gentleman, um, uh, he's a chief economist of JLL, he's a, a junk professor at Columbia, and um, uh, one more, one of the schools in New York. We talked about this, and um, uh, he talked about massive need for immigration. U.S. needs a lot more immigrants, a lot. Obviously documented, legal immigrants. Uh, and if this were to happen, uh, we obviously would, would, I think, if I remember correctly, he was talking about 10 million shortage of, um, let's just call them low skilled labor and the substantial, obviously highly skilled labor. Uh, but we're seeing a little bit of um, crisis, obviously on the, uh, on the Southern border. Uh, maybe it's a grand conspiracy theory to let so many more people in to solve the problem <laughs> through the undocumented immigration. But it, it is something that um, uh, there's a lot of need for. And the entire service industry is, is just suffering because um, a lot of labor force left and then it just doesn't want to go back. And, and uh, th this does create substantial breaks in the potential growth when corporations can't find enough employees. So for a foreseeable future, my two cents is uh, employees have some degree of leverage negotiating with corporations as far as how they're going to work. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what's really key to watch is the particip labor participation rate, which is actually still quite low. 
it really hasn't come back at all. It's several percentage points away from where it was pre-pandemic. And a tiny fraction of that is truly uh, explainable by the aging population, but it's only been a year or two. So um, most of it's related to the pandemic and the pandemic unemployment assistance and then the general psych psychology of who wants to work when and where. So it's going to be real interesting. I think in a year from now, we're going to have some of these answers. Yeah, it'll be very interesting. Well, we're running almost out of time, but let's just quickly touch on one interesting subject and um, uh, love to hear your thoughts. And I'm not, I'm a real estate investor, but you talked about ATM investing. Could you just briefly talk a little bit about uh, your investing kind of journey with the ATMs? It's almost crazy that people would invest in these old ATM machines and they're generating so much cash, but you, you tell me what's been your journey and, and what kind of returns they generate and kind of your, your thoughts and comments that the whole system makes sense if you continuously redeploy the money and you compound. Yeah, sure. And I'll try to keep it short, but um, I've been investing in ATM since 2008. It's currently 2021. Uh, with a, I started with a smaller operator, had a total number of machines, about 250 uh, in what I call mom and pop locations. So Joe's liquor store, the corner store, the nail salon, the barbershop, et cetera. And I have actually averaged with that, with that operator since 2008, uh, about 30 to 35% annualized since then, okay, cash on cash returns. That structure with that operator is variable and then I actually get a portion of the profits or surcharge of transaction fee per transaction per machine per month. Um, I have been investing with a much larger sponsor since 2017, who's the fifth largest owner in the US at the moment. And that's been a fixed rate return of roughly about 25% annualized, but that is a fixed term of, of seven years. And the IRR works out to be about 19 and change on that opportunity. And first thing I'll tell people who are listening to this is that you have to be extraordinarily careful in the ATM world because of Ponzi schemes. And you'll find that any asset class that has high projected returns combined with a lot of assets that are very hard to track combined with potential turnover of assets, which ATMs doesn't have, but that makes it even worse, has a higher probability of Ponzi schemes in my experience. And I will tell you, I have successfully identified three Ponzi schemes that were eventually broken up by the federal government between 2008 and 2021 in looking at different deals that I said, this is a Ponzi scheme. And it turned out to be broken up. By, I didn't report any of them. I was actually scared to. One of them actually ended up being, I think, the largest Ponzi scheme in Southern California ever possibly. Um, it was a few hundred million dollars. And um, so you have to be very careful in ATMs, but they are lucrative. And I think that I categorize ATMs as what I would call like low to or more medium risk, because on the low risk side, you have asset-based stuff like uh, real estate that we typically are looking at. And then you've got businesses you can invest in with very little asset base in them. So an ATM machine will depreciate very quickly and that's where the risk lies, right? So if you're not gonna get the uh, predicted cash flows from the business, you don't have much to fall back on. So that's where it goes up from a low risk investment to maybe a medium risk. But like a lot of business investments, they have to pay well to substantiate the investment because of the risk and because of the lack of asset backing. And that's what ATMs are. And ATMs are just synonymous with high margin. They just, it's, it's well known. So there's, we won't get into all the details we don't have time, but um, there's ways to do research on the companies to kind of, you know, help reduce risk to make sure you're in with someone or like at least lower the risk. And uh, by the way, any opportunity of anybody can end up being a Ponzi scheme. Uh, and at one time, most of them start legitimate and then they turn into Ponzi schemes over time. That's how Ponzi schemes go in the, in the most part, but not always, but for, for, for very often and ATM specifically, that's often, often what happens. Um, and so um, 
you know, there's always risk no matter what. So just I would caution people on the ATM uh, topic specifically that if you're going to consider ATMs, even though they can be great, there are a lot of Ponzi schemes out there and you can Google them and find them too. Thank you, Jeremy. That was brilliant. It's uh, you, you both provided it's it's a high reward, but watch out for the Ponzi schemes. And it also my, my other thought, and we chatted before the call, that obviously you have to figure out to how to amortize your capital because you're not going to get your money back in, in seven years. So what you get in cash uh, is what you get over seven years, which includes return of capital as part of the math. And you have to re be redeploying that capital very uh, efficiently and compounding. Otherwise, if it's going to sit in the bank and do nothing, your actual rate of return is not going to be as exciting as what you said at 19%. It's just the getting cash early is what magnifies the IRR math. So Yeah, so one more benefit you get from the, quick, the high cash on cash is that you get to reduce the risk more quickly because you know projected payback periods in these types of opportunities of three to four years say um, you know, you're know you taking a risk off the table much more quickly than a typical opportunity, uh, assuming it performs to projections, right? So, but yes, everything else he said, 100%, you gotta look at the IRR, you've gotta focus on compounding. And if you do all that, you can potentially benefit from tremendous compounding over time. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so great wisdom, would love to have you back. This is the second recording and the amount of knowledge and wisdom and just brilliance from you is, is just staggering. I'm, I'm, I'm really appreciative of, of what, what I will, you know, the, the brilliance that I'm hearing. So I'm grateful to you and I'd love to have you back. We'll do it again. Let's schedule another one of these sessions because you, you're just, just wealth of knowledge and experience. Yeah, happy and, to do it. Yeah. Uh, thank you kindly. Appreciate your time. Uh, as they say in the good old Star Trek, I'm a big fan. Um, when uh, I don't know if you, well, if you follow Star Trek, you'll understand what I'm talking about. If not, it's when the next generation, the last episode, uh, Q, the omnipotent being, is about to destroy humanity. It says, well, all good things must come to an end. He's about to destroy humanity. But that's <laughs> <laughs> so all good things do come to an end, unfortunately. Well, thank, uh, thanks again for having me on, though. I appreciate it. Hopefully it was helpful for your listeners. It was it was awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.